So hello again and welcome to another episode of Lutz and Jasper. Today without Jasper because he is on his well-deserved vacation. However, we have Tarek here from Catalog. He is one of the uh, CEOs which have really made huge, nice business model around large language models. And we thought it's worthwhile to bring him on to actually chat with him about it. So we talk about how he's using large language models to essentially um, become the one unified interface for all enterprise software and how he is doing this and what the business and the product challenge are behind those. We dig into as well a little bit history. We go from how UX interfaces or uh, user interfaces, graphical user interfaces have involved and they came from terminal and today everybody is terminal um, back to the old school sort of say we talk about why siri and amazon might be challenged and then we dig into the technology about the different layers you use in llm to actually guide as well as that you can have a rule-based engine to force an llm to actually do what you want it to do, as well as we do a throwback to last episode of Rags, where we're actually looking into how um, Catalog is using um, Rags and uh, how they're using this to avoid that a large language model digs into deeper layers and start hallucination. So it's a, it's a lot what we did. It's a super interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy our episode. Hey, Tarek. Hey, Lutz. Very good to meet you. Where are you at the moment? Where are you based? I'm in London. In London. Nice. I mm. hope it's not that like terrible hot as it is everywhere in Europe at the moment. It's surprisingly, it's a surprisingly pleasant uh, summer in London. So nice, uh, nice. enjoying, enjoy, enjoying not sweating. Let's let's talk a little bit about what you do, and maybe give us a quick overview of the company. We are um, a catalog. I have tested catalog. Catalog is actually a pretty interesting tool, a super slick interface. Thank you. Um, but and uh, you using at the core, um, I would say a large language model, which is all the rave at the moment. So tell us a little bit about what is catalog solving, which problem? So, so the one you probably used on the website is probably just the onboarding, where it's onboarding is fully sort of. Um, pipelined by an LLM. Um, what we actually sell is an enterprise work hub. So we enable employees in a company to access information from across systems in real time and perform actions across tools in real time from a single pane of glass designed for the enterprise. And it's all entirely powered by LLM start to finish. So if now the uh, all of LLM start to finish, we all very often kind of saying, you know what? LLMs are just a, a nice interface. <laughs> what makes an enterprise software need an LLM? And how do you use this? Maybe just walk us through a sample workflow. I can, I can, so it's less what an enterprise needs and it's more what the user needs. So as a user, you might have a question of like, hey, when did we launch, um, you know, product X version 5? And the LLMs are able to sort of understand and destructure that request. And if you fine-tune LLMs into understanding all of the data repositories in the company, not the data, 
just the data repositories, and then you teach it how to access that, then it can essentially go and automate the acts of you going and looking for that information. And it's not, we don't use LLMs for data retrieval. We don't think LLMs are a good sort of um, solution for that problem. Uh, but we use the reasoning and synthesis capabilities of LLMs to understand queries, understand intent, understand context, and then resolve that into a series of actions and workflows that are automated to give the user an, an answer, basically. It can also be things like, where's my payslips from March 2023? And it can, it can then deconstruct that and say payslips are going to be in Workday. Um, Workday has an API. If there's an API for Workday for retrieving payslips. The user wants a payslip from March 2023. What is the format for that Workday API? You know, convert that request into an API call, do a deterministic retrieval, and then give that back to the user. And we don't do this in a chat interface. We use something called a prompt interface. So it's it's a single line that you enter into the system. And depending on what the requirement is, the UI changes. So if you do a search, it, it renders a search results. If you ask for a summary, it renders a summary view. If you ask for what's the revenue from Q223, uh, it renders a graph. Very cool. They are now like, I have so many questions here. So, <laughs> uh, and I just, I just put them out so that we have a, a roadmap for us to discuss. There is a whole challenge on the product design challenge above. Yes. How do you define Absolutely. those use cases? Why do you change the interface of engaging with the user for different use cases? Is that not more confusing or is it helpful? How do you, how do you guide the user? That's mm -hmm. one. There is the whole um, question on how do you utilize an LLM? for mm -hmm. that use case because you said we are not using llms for information retrieval yes. however you do for that journey you use mm -hmm. the llm in the beginning because you use a prompt and mm -hmm. then at the end once you get the answer in a different interface right so and then the third one is you talked about api access i think you are probably doing something like chaining of a long chain as well as Rags, we talked about this. So let's dig into those technical depths as well. But first, tell me a little bit about the product journey. Why is there even a need? Can I not just use my existing tools? Can I not just go to Workday or use Google Drive or whatever I need to have on my interface? Why do I need a completely new surface mm -hmm. uh, towards my enterprise software? And so there's two ways to look at this. So one is it's not uh, a completely new surface. If you think about all the people joining the company uh, into a new organization, let's say, you have to introduce them to seven new surfaces. Like if you want to book your holiday, here's the surface for doing that. If you want you know, guidance on policies, here's the surface for doing that. So when somebody joins a company and you say, here's the one screen into which you ask every question you have about the business and everything to have to do with your employment, I don't think it's a net new surface. I think it's surface compression. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The second is workflow compression. So if you think about, if you decompose that, you know, a journey of booking time off in, let's say, a fairly large enterprise, you go into some sort of like a service layer, like Okta or one login, and then you go into that, and then you go into Workday, and then inside of Workday, you navigate to paid time off, and inside of paid time off, you say, you know, book time off, and then you give it the details, and then there's probably some sort of, you know, input that you need to go through there. That's already, you're, you're at like three different services and 11 or 12 clicks. Um, you can compress that workflow to essentially one prompt and two clicks. 
by using our system. So one is surface compression. So surface sort of, um, what do you call it, uh, aggregation, you know, to, um, to put another word to it. And the other is workflows compress. And what we're seeing consistently is that workflows are compressing from two or three surfaces, 10 to 15 clicks to one query, two clicks, one query, three clicks. And so it's a lot better for the user. It's a lot better for the business because the business does not need to train all of their employees and guide all of their employees into all these different systems. And it's it's a much cleaner, it's a much more effective, it's a much less error prone interface. So for registering my, I'm taking a day off, Mm-hmm. I'm new in the company. I would need to know that I go to a tool like Workday. Now, obviously, there is an intranet, and somewhere in the intranet, I find the information, <laughs> and it's terrible, and I don't know. So I normally mm-hmm. ask my colleague, how do I do this, or my manager? That's and right. what I now do is I actually have the first part is an information retrieval. I say, like, how do I actually get a day off, mm-hmm. which would be then the flow, which is an information retrieval flow. And you're going even a step further. You're saying, actually, you know what? Instead of clicking on Workday, you just tell the tool. That's right. How many days do I have? Can I already take a day off? I would like to get tomorrow off. Is that okay? Please register this for me. That's right. Got it. Essentially, you're going to to war with Workday. No, we're working with Workday. Um, Workday can slowly... Because if you think about the complexity that Workday has solved, from a HRIS perspective, where most of these sort of enterprise tools have a 95.5 distribution, most of these things you'll find it where 5% of the sort of users use like everything else in the application, but 95% just use one or two things. So if you, in the, in the explicit example of Workday, and Workday might be a very poor example, but in the example of Workday, that's going to be getting my pay slips and booking time off, or maybe looking at the directory. And that's just like 2% of the interface of what mm. you can do in Workday. And so for those use cases, um, you know, you can keep Workday just headless to the business. And it's just the hiring managers, it's just the HR team, it's just the people team that is exposed to that extremely complicated, clunky and, you know, um, Amazonian forest that is Workday. Uh, whereas, <laughs> and everyone else can get, you know, a very simple prompt interface where you just ask the business what you want it to do. But then are you, um, so from that user flow, mm-hmm. you are decoupling the end user who actually has a need. I want to get a day off. I want to know my pain slip mm-hmm. um, from the actual tool, which is serving that user. That's right. You are saying uh, we are generating for enterprises a general interface. That's right. Anything interface. That's right. Do you think there is the future is that we will see a lot of headless interfaces? I think the future is headless services. So Workday, Salesforce, a lot of these things that are essentially data repositories, um, they have domain-specific intelligence, domain-specific knowledge, domain-specific workflows. And, you know, they've done all the work around compliance and legal and all those things required to sort of operate in that domain of the business. That's valuable. And that's what you know, is giving Workday value. It's not the interface. It's not the fact that you can book time off. It's all the things that they've enabled to make help you book time off. And so they can provide APIs into as many co-pilots, as many surfaces that exist for a business for them to do these you know, 95.5 distribution work. And they can focus on the five and make that as robust as possible. Yeah. Um, and you can see this issue with a lot of enterprise tooling, you know, SAP, Conquer, 
all of these things where the interfaces are really clunky because, you know, it's essentially from the 90s uh, and they haven't been able to change it. And they don't have really their business. The people who buy are the HR team. They right. want the compliance. They want the system. They want the integration. Exactly. They also want to have a nice interface, but they yeah. really, it's not highest product feature on their agenda. No. Therefore, those interfaces tend to look bad. And you mm -hmm. are seeing here your chance to saying, because those interfaces are not a product in itself, let's make it a product in itself yeah. and offer a simplified version to all of those interfaces. That's right. Awesome. Okay, so now here my product challenge. Yes. The interfaces you see mm -hmm. are tagged for better or worse. And let's, yes, we have bad interfaces in the, in the 80s and they became better <laughs> and mm -hmm. technology played a role. But for better or worse, they mm -hmm. attack to a given workflow. That's right. Meaning the workflow has to know certain things and because yeah. it needs to know certain things, yes. okay, you want to take, take time off. First, mm -hmm. I need to know whether you are a temporary employee or a full employee, whether mm -hmm. you need to have a certain amount of yeah. vacation mm -hmm. days accrued before you can take off and whether they apply a certain right. limit yes. to you. And therefore, certain things have to happen before you actually can register. That's right. And therefore, they designed a certain interface. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that with the use of language as such, you can overcome all of those complexities because essentially the interface can ask you all the questions they need to ask you before. So there's, there's two layers to it. One is the idea of you're starting a request and the request has state and the request has a certain set of requirements, a request has a certain journey that it needs to take you through. The second is um, the application itself has a certain amount of ergonomics around the API. So if they expose a book time off API, it's going to tell you what it needs to know to book that time off. There's going to be validation. There's going to be failures if you don't give it that information and things like that. And most often you can compose multiple APIs to sort of achieve the goal that you're trying to see. Now, first you would hit the get time off, available time off endpoint, get see you've got 15 days off, right? And the second thing would be, okay, book three days off. And here's the reason for it. Here's the start date. Here's the end date. And here's the category for that. And then, then you say, okay, book time is done. But that, then the request is sort of completed. So we use LLMs at the first. You, you, you mentioned earlier that we use LLMs at the start and we use LLMs at the end. Uh, we actually use LLMs at every step of that um, journey, including routing the next requirement, routing planning, breaking down essentially for that set of APIs. What is the state required and what is the journey required? And are those APIs available and validate that flow before we even present it to the user? We don't use Langchain. We, um, I think Langchains are an amazing prototyping tool. Uh, but if you want to go into anything very specific and very you know, highly bespoke, uh, I think you'll, you'll have to build your own chaining mechanisms and build your own machine interface models. And uh, we've essentially cooked up the whole thing internally ourselves. Nice. Let me stay on, before we dig into the technology, let me stay on the actual value proposition. So mm -hmm. the value proposition is break down any interface you might have on a enterprise standard software because they are bad. That's, that's essentially the value proposition. <laughs> you're I wouldn't say they're bad, but there's an opportunity to simplify them. Got it. So there's two things. So that is not the core value proposition. The core value proposition is retrieval 
then we have actions. So we also do, yeah, to your point earlier, you know, if you ha- if somebody has a question about something and that information sits anywhere in their systems, we help, you know, do it. And it's again, it's not just a one shot retrieval. There's a breakdown of, oh, you want to know this thing. We're going to go look here, find the information, come back and then process. There's a sequence of events that workflow, an information generation workflow, essentially that we execute to give the user back whatever it is that they need. You know, when did product X launch? Who is responsible for this? When is our client due for renewal? And if there is an answer for this anywhere in any of the systems, we'll find it and we'll give it back to the user. Okay, so essentially the first level is Mm -hmm. you are creating this universal interface. Yes, for for information and actions. Yes, and I, I love this. And we will, uh, let's only do this layer by layer. So that's the first yeah. layer. If you mm-hmm. do that layer, mm-hmm. why, that's my product question now, fair like challenge, why would you actually change the interface depending on what the user wants? Because aren't you going down the same rabbit hole as those companies went down as they created mm-hmm. their interfaces? So the way to sort of decouple the similarities would be um, they built very bespoke workflow level UIs, right? So booking time off is going to be is going to have a booking time off sequence, and it's going to be very bespoke to booking time off. And the booking time off UI is not going to be like anything else inside of Workday. Now, that explodes into you've now got 350, 400 deterministic flows inside the product in something like Workflow that could, Workday that could be like 2,000, 3,000 types of flows, you know, and uh, they're deter- deterministic journeys. Whereas for us, the abstraction is one level higher. So if it's a request, you, are, you need some information to collect from the user. So we, we render a form. Oh. <laughs> and if you, if you want to render a form, you know, this is these are the form elements, and we can render form. And that's not that's also dynamic. So we don't have code anywhere that says for workday render this form. The LLM does that again. So you get the generality that LLMs enable by saying for this type of interface, we've put the boundary conditions, but you know, adapt it to whatever use case comes to mind. And then there's a information representation view, which is you've retrieved the info. How do you show that to the user? And so there's about a, a, a finite list of maybe even 20 or 25 max. And I think the real answer is 90% of the use cases are going to fall within the first five, but we can get to like 25, for example. So it's 10, 25 abstract views that we maintain, not 3,000 to 4,000 like in the previous paradigm. And okay. what's enabling that is LLMs and the ability to generalize a specific thing into many things in real time. Why would not, if I'm any of those enterprise value tools, why would I not actually create my own interface? And since I own the relationship with the customer, mm-hmm. um, I would create this interface and would kick you out of the game. If I'm Workday, yeah, and people are saying, oh, okay, look, I mean... <laughs> Your interface is terrible. Nobody can use it. Um, yeah. Have you heard about LMs? Can you not just make it smarter? Yeah. Um, then, if Workday says no, I don't, then mm-hmm. they bring a catalog in yeah. and put this up front. Mm-hmm. But now the user never sees really Workday. No. Workday become stateless. Yeah. Just yeah. in the background, I yeah. register something. So Workday has the sex appeal of 
database table within Amazon, <laughs> which is essentially <laughs> zero. Right. And Workday would lose all their leverage mm -hmm. because, okay, yeah, they still do their workflows and whatsoever and have tables and um, privacy setting and access controls and all of this. But the actual product interface becomes you. Yes. Why would Workday allow this? We don't just show a form. You, we say, you know, booking time off on Workday. We show the logo. We show the activity that we are conducting. That also brings trust to the user in that uh, this is being done in the right place, for example. So we do surface the, the service in, in, in the interface and say, you're doing this on Workday. So Workday does, isn't completely in the background. Um, we do surface their visibility. But in terms of the user experience and controlling that user experience, uh, that's all in our hands. Got it, got it. I, I mean, um, I, I used to work for Google Health, and Google Health started to build a way easier interface for data retrieval than on top of Cerner, <laughs> the EHR. And I think the like, so they they have the data there, like but the interface. You know, like you might have heard those stories, like yeah, takes you forty seven clicks to uh, book an ibuprofen right. if you're in a hospital, right? And uh, uh, doctors click themselves to death uh, instead of um, giving care and giving health. And with a good user interface, you could do actually quite a lot of things. And EHR, mm -hmm. Electronic Health Records Systems, have definitely not a good user interface. But yeah. by doing so, um, the EHR of record, Cerner in this case, would lose access to their audience, right? So it became very clear later on. Um, and as we know now, um, Cerno went uh, not together with, with Google to do this because there is a separation mm -hmm. between the actual user and um, the actual underlying platform. Are you afraid that the same will be applied to you business as business issue? If we were doing just interfaces, I think I would be worried. Um, but we do retrieval. And there's, there's two questions, right? So yes. um, there's two questions you asked. One is, why wouldn't Workday do their own sort of, you know, natural language interface? And yeah. if they do that, why do, you need, why do you need something like this? And I think that's going to be true broadly for every app. You know, Office is going to have Copilot, uh, Salesforce has Einstein GPT. I'm sure Workday is going to have WorkGPT at some point. And uh, they will have these siloed co-pilots that will operate within essentially their world. And they'll have this chat interface that's sitting alongside their normal interface and to help you do stuff. Yeah. And I don't think that siloed approach is going to necessarily scale. So if you're going into Workday and then you're using the Workday co-pilot, the Workday co-pilot will know everything inside of Workday, but it does not know your calendar. It does not know all of the other stuff. It does not know your documents. It does not know, like the access is siloed. So we go back to the same problem from the SaaS fragmentation perspective of like, you have all these wonderful co-pilots, but they have, you know, their own little worlds. I think the second thing of using chat as the paradigm for these co-pilots, uh, I don't know if multi-town interfaces are the right way to solve, like you said, there's 47 clicks in an EHR system you'll have 47 tons of conversation in every computer now, in every app to achieve anything. Because if you say, even if you think about that simple use case of booking time off, 
you know, picking the day. What is the reason? What is the start day? What is the end day? What is the category? Would, would you like to take this from your paid time off? Would you like to take this away from... That's about 10, 11 turns back and forth. And I don't know if that's any better than going into, you know, workday and doing those 17 clicks. And maybe yes. I'd, So there is this thing of, there is, there is appeal in that these natural language interfaces are going to solve something. But I think the chat paradigm, as Alexa has shown repeatedly, like that's an exception-first interface. Turn-by-turn conversation is an exception-first interface. And so the amount of wiggle room that you give to the user to give you the wrong input, like when would you like time off? It'll say, and if you say uh, sometime mid-next week to the week after that, and be like, what, what exactly do you mean? Yeah. Whereas if you say, I want to book time off, and you render a calendar, to let you pick the date, then you've got the best of both worlds, essentially. Yeah. Which is fast cutting. And I think the Alexa example is actually a neat one because Alexa f- thought they're doing a good job by offering all the different tools, but that me- meant now that I had to take a decision where I would like to ask something and then yeah. i would go into that tool very much old school you open a tool where you're saying actually that the ex- the tools exist is a constraint of the computer world what we do is we now just do the intelligent routing you don't need to decide which tool you want to do exactly like I'm, I'm working I, i'm i'm working for cornell uh, uh, as one of my jobs so i always need to remember where do I register my um, travel expenses in Cornell? Because I do this differently in different companies. Yes. And here I do not need it. It's an old world system. No. I totally get it. That integration piece makes a lot of sense. Let's okay. dig into the technology a little bit. So you use large language models to deconstruct. But you, mm-hmm. as well said, you use large language models to, to actually test out the, the workflow as such. Meaning, are you doing this every time? Isn't that super expensive? Hey, surprisingly, when you so if you use a temperature one, you know, uh, prompt engineered sort of uh, LLM, I think you we have the issues of like, are you constructing that every single time? But if you use a fine tuned model down to temperature zero, and you've you know trained it on five thousand, ten thousand journeys, you've essentially, and you can generalize that 10,000 to 100,000 sort of situations, it's fairly deterministic. And the cost is very, very low because the number of tokens you're putting into that is in the order of tens um, and it's close to nothing. And if you, you can, another way to sort of look at that cost is let's say every deterministic flow might seem like it not cost anything, but if you start to look at what it takes to manage that many flows from an engineering perspective, from a product perspective, or maintenance perspective, from an error management perspective, that deterministic journey sort of explodes into you know, a million permutations. And so the cost of a deterministic flow is not any cheaper necessarily than one that is dynamically generated, because the dynamically generated one does not have the fixed costs of maintaining all of those essentially flows. So there's ways to sort of look at and, and evaluate both. And I don't think it's necessarily true in every scenario. But if you look at the, if, you, if you're doing, if you're using this approach in a specific space and there's complexity, it's worth sort of assessing what it takes to manage and maintain that complexity versus letting the LLM do that job. It makes perfect sense. So you, you would reset those flows just to, like, let's say I have my API mm-hmm. and 
in the back end, my API changes or the workflow changes, you would actually automatically discover this. You would not That's need right. to actually rerun the complexity of it. That's right. And so as APIs change, as definitions change, as new capabilities get plugged in, there is no deterministic code anywhere that needs updating. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Now, how do you actually, let's say, a typical workflow is I register my um, holiday, and then I put an out-of-office reminder into my calendar. Mm-hmm. How, now, um, would I always get those steps? How can you force the LLM to always follow those steps if you're saying those two are actually very important? And if you redo the workflow every day on the fly through a, a logis- like a logical thinking process, and then you do the chaining of the logic, even if you don't use Langchain, how would you ensure that this always the same, but still open enough to see changes? So one thing that um, we didn't talk about is what it's using underneath our LLMs is a workflow engine that we built. So what the LLM is doing is it's generating a workflow on the fly every time. And in the case where you want a deterministic journey, like you say, uh, you're filing a bug report in the company and you want to get the information, you want to get the user's name, the ID, which browser they're on, what system they're on, and you know all of these inputs from the customer or whoever the user is. And the second step is that you create a ticket in Jira um, with these sort of information filled in. And the third step is that you, you send a message on Slack or Microsoft Teams into the specific channel, and that's done. You can, you can design this journey inside of, inside of our systems. We call it workflows. And if you create a workflow, every time a request matches a workflow definition, it will trigger that workflow every time. Then it goes away from a dynamically generated journey to a deterministic journey. So there is control for the user. Got it. There is so for the LLM, the first is um, there is a look up the workflow, mm-hmm. look up whether there is something you always want to yes. do, and then for the rest, um, go into free flow okay. logic, and those might vary every right, time. Exactly. But that means for you having implementation cost, right? Because now you have to design the workflow. It's no low code. Uh, users can do it themselves. It's imagine it's Zapier, but you know internally for the business. The implementation okay. would be defining those workflows and journeys. Ideally, it's down to just you know four or five that they want to keep the same exactly every time per team or per department. Things like you know booking time off. You might want to have everyone always mention time off to the entire department. I don't think you should do that, but as an example, every time you book a time off, yeah. let's say you need to send an email to the entire department saying Lutz is going on holiday for seventeen weeks. Here's what uh, here's what the details are. You can you can enforce that. Uh, but ideally, yes, uh, yeah. you don't need to. But then, t- tell me a little bit: is is that the solution to to have an underlying rules engine? Is that the solution to avoid hallucination? The way to avoid hallucination is to stop the model from reaching into the model layers for information. Um, tell me more. So, if 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 you're if you're generating the next token, and it's reaching into the model then it's probabilistic. There's a chance it might find 17 matches for the next token. And it's going to roll the dice, uh, essentially, on what that next... I mean, there's probabilities and there's temperature and all kinds of entropy to sort of change that. Uh, But it is probabilistic retrieval. 
the way to stop it from hallucinating is to give it the information it needs to inference. So, for example, if you give it this morning's, if you if you start the generation with the context being this the front page of the New York Times today, and you say, what was on the front page? What is the most important thing on the front page of the New York Times today? It can still hallucinate because you've introduced some sort of like, you know, um, variance in, in its understanding of what important is. But if you say, okay. but if you say things like, here's the front page of the New York Times, summarize it for me, it's going to give you exactly what you gave it. Whereas without the context, if you say, Sum- summarize the front page of the New York Times for me, it's going to make things up because it doesn't have access to today's New York Times. So giving it the information in raw format, in sort of structured format, unstructured format, whatever it is, and then using that information to do uh, what you need to do with it, either summarize, as a list, or create some sort of whatever else, that, that's called, which is what you were talking about in terms of retrieval augmented, augmented generation. Retrieval augmented generation is yeah. where you get it, and then augment it, and then you generate. But this is fun because now, so, and we, we jump to rugs mm-hmm. now, but it's actually, let's stay on the, on the workflow um, rule-based setup you have. Because you have a rule-based setup. You're saying this is what you always should do. You should always send an email to the whole, <laughs> a whole population about your vacation yeah. um, as, a, as a bad yeah. example. But uh, you set this as a rule, and that is in your rule-based That's engine. Right. Um, how do you, how do you, like, you can enforce the LLM to stick to this mm-hmm. rule. This is cool. And that's not a rag. This is just a that's rule. Right. <laughs> you follow our rules engine saying, like, don't don't make up stuff. Don't find logic. Just, just do, do it. Yes. Um, because I created this rule. And it's a rule-based engine. Fine. How do you decide in your design, in your product design, how much you do rule-based versus how much you do LLM? Because that's the, uh, essentially, you don't give them a choice. For a rag, you actually give them a choice and saying, I give you structured text, and that structured text is so much better um, that you should believe in it. And as we saw, and you, you had the episode where I tried to become a, have superpowers, it was not sufficiently structured for them to believe it. If I would have made this a rule saying, okay, when you get asked <laughs> from somebody whether Lutz is, uh, is um, like uh, Captain America, you have to answer yes, then this becomes a rule. There is no way around right. it. But here, um, how do you keep that balance? So in, in a way, uh, remember that transition from terminal to GUI? You know, when they're like, how much of you know, GUI do we need? How much terminal do we need? And maybe maybe explain to the listeners a little bit what is GUI. So a terminal is essentially the the terminal interface where you have a command line, and you have you know commands that you can put into it, like mkdir to make a directory, and then you do all these sorts of things. GUI is the graphical user interface, and and you click, you use the mouse, you can you don't need to remember commands anymore. And yes. over time, there was this, I mean, this is early in the 90s as, or late 80s when they started shifting. Um, when you start thinking about, like, there was lots of pushback. You know, GUIs are a very suboptimal way to do things. Engineers and programmers loved using the terminal because they had, you know, instant recall of what commands they need and they could get things done much faster than you could get done in a GUI. Now, there was a balance then where you did half the things inside of DOS and half the things inside of a GUI. And that was the start of the paradigm. And 
Interesting. And, and yes. so as that paradigm got stronger and stronger and stronger, the distribution of what happens in the GUI and what happens in the terminal went from 50-50, 70-30, 90-10. Now it's down to just engineers doing engineer things in terminals <laughs> and everyone uses the GUI. Now it's actually shifting everybody using our language <laughs> prompting interface. So we are now to 100 on the, the terminal. But yeah, I, I hear you. But the, the thing, so I like this example, but there's one caveat mm -hmm. to me. The decision whether to use the user, the graphical interface, <clears throat> or the terminal was the agent operating That's system. Right. And that agent took a decision and then like for the case that they wanted to do something funky and they realized, oh, I actually, you know, <laughs> erase all doesn't work on a graphical interface. I actually go and uh, type erase star dot star or delete star dot star on a terminal and that actually works better. So uh, who is taking that decision mm -hmm. at, uh, 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 at Catalog? Right, because now you you you're defining this is a rule based, mm -hmm. and your interface, your logic engine will adhere to That's it. Right. This would be telling the human you only can use terminal for making a folder. Okay. Period. Right? How do you how do you decide this? To your point earlier, everyone's now back to a terminal, and the entry point is now a terminal. It's a prompt. Uh, it's not a chat, but yeah. it's a prompt. And this is where, depending on the prompt, rendering the right interface is powerful. So if the prompt is, I want to delete files, then the next thing would be enter delete star dot star. If you say, I want to make an image of a cat, then it would open up Photoshop in the GUI. And so getting the intent of the user and then making that decision on behalf of the user, where you take the agency away, as you were saying earlier, you know, as a... As, as a user, I had to decide whether I delete using the terminal or using File Explorer. But if you take that decision away from the user and we say, this is what you want to do, which is what was not available before. Before the intent was in the user's head, the terminals were dumb machines. But now we are moving to giving the intent to the machine and letting the machine make the decision of what the next step is. Got it. And that's where... Sorry. And, and that's where the defining the workflow based off the intent is very powerful because this is a new paradigm. We haven't had systems where you started with the intent. You started with an action. Perfect. All right. I got this. So now we, we like just from, let's dig one layer deeper. We, we talked about the product challenge becoming the interface. We talked about um, now the way you connect actually the mm -hmm. workflow, how much is workflow versus how much is logic from LLM. Now you, everything is now over onto the LLM, okay. and now you are trying to avoid um, that the LLM comes back with hallucination, yeah. kind of like saying, oh, actually, tell me your birthday as well, because I, will, I, I think the best time to take holiday is on a birthday, <laughs> <laughs> right? And you suddenly have a... Um, 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 in a wrong direction. And for that, you're actually saying, don't reach into deeper layers, which makes sense, but rather focus the whole LLM on a set of data, which they use for augmentation. Right. No, augmentation. Right. So building the, con building the context around the user um, every time they have a request and containing what's possible within that context. So if you go into catalog, if I go into, uh, we, we use catalog, catalog. So if I go into catalog and I say, who speaks Spanish? 
um, it's going to give me two names from our HRI system because two people in the company speak Spanish. If I go to ChatGPT and say, who speaks Spanish? I'm going to get all kinds of answers. And so that context construction and containing essentially the breadth and depth to which the LLM sort of uh, navigates to find the answer is, is where the control lies. And that's what I think. It's not just about augmenting with information. It's also augmenting with, with the boundaries of that information. What was for you the challenging part to get down to this level of, again, specificity? How... Who speaks Spanish? Mm-hmm. The answer could be the king of yes. Spain, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> Which is, by the way, a very true answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know the name at the moment, uh, unfortunately, but like you, you could say that's a person who speaks right. Spanish. How do you, and it would be a true answer, how do you validate mm-hmm. that the augmented information actually gets retrieved? So, how yeah. do you do this technically? How, how is it set so up? So, this is old school engineering like so if you think through who speaks spanish the first step is always get the information for where this thing would exist so who speaks spanish we've fine-tuned the models to understand that's an attribute of a person and so you might want to look into our hris system and for for people with tags of spanish or language spanish and it comes back with a result set you augment that result set and then you do the inference And if the result set is zero results, here is the query into Workday and it's come back with zero results, then the language model is sort of stuck in answering, staying in that context. It can't say, you know, the the king of Spain is who speaks Spanish. It's like, we don't have anybody who speaks Spanish because we have contained the scope of that um, that specific generation with, with with clear context in that this is the question, this is the data that you've got to work with, and this is the answer that you need to give back to the user. That's right. Yes, makes perfect sense. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Absolutely. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye-bye.